Today's scripture comes from Daniel 1, verses 1 to 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his, king, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. You may be seated. As we get seated, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Gracious God, we pray that you be with us now. For those of us who have had uh, difficult weeks, for those of us who have had busy weeks, for those of us who have had good weeks, no matter what kind of week we've had, Lord, be with us now. Help us to see that your word is true, your word is good, and open our eyes that we may see wondrous things. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Sam. I'm one of the team here. And as usual, it's so good to see each of you here this morning. We're in our summer series. It is the summer, Living by Faith. And so far, we've been going through stories in the Old Testament as God's people looked forward to Christ. I just want to give us a roadmap of, of where we're headed. From next week, we're going to be spending four weeks in the book of Hebrews as, as we seek to see Christ more clearly. That's where we've been, where we're going. And for, for this morning, we're going to get started on our, on our last Old Testament story from the book of Daniel. And we open with a line from Psalm 137. And this is the line. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That's from Psalm 137 verse 4. A psalm written while the Jews were in exile having been taken out of their country to live in a foreign land. And before we go on, let's take a bit of time to, to remember how the Jews ended up in exile in the first place. Rewind hundreds of years back in time, and God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And he brought them into the promised land, forming the nation of Israel. They were God's people, living in God's place, promising to live under God's rule. But they rejected God's rule. Repeatedly, time and time again, they disobeyed God's commands, rejecting His rule and choosing instead to worship other gods. God, in His grace and mercy, sent them prophet after prophet to warn them, to call them to repent, to turn back to Him. But they ignored His warnings. 
And after warning after warning fell on deaf ears and hard hearts, God did just what he'd been warning all along. And he sent judgment on his people. The northern half of, of Israel was completely destroyed by a country called Assyria. And soon after that, the southern half, which is also called Judah, was taken over by an even greater power called Babylon. And what Babylon did is they exiled the Jews in several waves, taking them out of their land to live in a foreign land, to live in exile. And this is the setting of the book of Daniel. God's people are in exile. And they are asking, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How shall we live as God's people when living in a land that is not our true home? And in many ways, that's the same question we're asking for ourselves today, isn't it? The Bible explains that we, as Christians, we are living in exile too. And every day, we have more and more reminders that we are in exile, as we have more and more reminders of how things are not as they should be. And the Bible tells us that that's because this is not our true home. Our true home is in heaven, where we will one day be with God, but until we get to heaven, while we are here on earth, we are living as exiles. And so we ask the same question that the book of Daniel tries to answer. How shall we live as God's people while living in a land that is not our true home? And the book of Daniel answers this question with four words. Four words. God is in control. God is in control. Control. God is in control when things are going well. But God is also in control when things are not going well. When we're in exile and God doesn't appear to be in control of anything at all. Daniel 1 to 6, which we're going to go through this morning, is a set of six stories. And the thread that holds all of these stories together are the four words God is in control. Control. Look, look at chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of, of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. We note the words, don't we? And the Lord gave. We see it again in 2.37 as Daniel addresses King Nebuchadnezzar. You, he says, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's the one who has conquered Judah, but it's actually God who has given Judah into his hand. This phrase that God gave, that God has given, is scattered throughout the book of Daniel. It's, it's there to remind us, reassure us that God is in control. And I... And I wonder how many of us need to hear that this morning. God is in control when we have difficult decisions to make. God is in control after we've made bad decisions. God is in control after we've made good decisions. God is in control when others make fun of you and pressure you to think and to act like everyone else does. And God is in control even in the midst of pain and suffering and persecution. God is in control. 
Now, we need to be very careful here when we understand God's control. The Bible is clear. God's control doesn't mean that we don't have to take responsibility for our actions. And, and if we don't have time to go into this, but if you have questions, I'd love to talk through this with you because this is really important. What, what, what God's control does mean is that our understanding of our responsibility and others' responsibilities must come hand in hand with the unchanging truth that God is ultimately in full control. See, God is in control. And what, and what chapters 1 to 6 of Daniel does is it gives us five principles. Five principles on how to live by faith in light of God's control. Remember, relate, repent, resist, and redeem. Remember, relate, repent, resist, and redeem. So to our first point, remember. Remembering that God is in control. See, chapter 1 tells us that Daniel and his friends were, were among the first wave of exiles taken from Judah into Babylon. And when they were there, they were chosen to go through three years of reprogramming, to be immersed in, uh, in Babylonian culture, to replace their previous identity with a new identity, to replace their previous beliefs with new beliefs. Verse 4 tells us they were re-educated, re-educated with new literature and new language. Verse 5 tells us they were given new food. And verse 7 tells us they were given new names, Babylonian names. Babylonian names that invoked the help of Babylonian gods instead of the living God. And then verse 8 tells us that Daniel took issue with the food. Look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Instead, the author tells us, Daniel asks that he be allowed to eat just vegetables and drink water. And before we go on, we need to notice two things here. The first is this. Notice what Daniel did not take issue with. We have no evidence that he rejected his new name. We have no evidence they kicked up a fuss at having to learn a new language and new literature. And I think here's an, a really important takeaway for us. Living in exile means that we will live in a foreign culture. And this foreign culture will in some ways, perhaps many ways, be hostile to our beliefs. But Daniel teaches us that we don't have to take issue with everything in our culture. Sometimes we have to resist. We will have to actively resist and perhaps even protest the culture. But Daniel shows us that res resisting and protesting are not the only tools in the Christian's toolbox. Resisting and protesting are not the only right responses available to us as Christians who seek to honour God in our foreign culture. Scholar Tremper Longman writes this, Daniel endured much cultural assimilation Yet he knew where it was appropriate for him to draw the line of distinction. The text implies that Daniel acted in a right manner for his situation. Once again, Daniel is not given to us as a model for the one biblical way for the believer to interact with his or her culture. Rather, when viewed in the light of the rest of Scripture, Daniel imparts the liberating yet frightening news that there are multiple ways to be a believer in an unbelieving world. Much depends on the person and his or her specific cultural situation. Now, I need to make a clarification here. I'm not saying that everything is relative and you do you. That's not what's happening here. 
What I am saying, and what I think the text is saying, is that as we live as believers in an unbelieving world, we must be careful not to assume that there is only one particular way that is right for us to engage with our culture as Christians. And we'll see that for all five of these principles that we're covering this morning, not all of them are equally relevant in every single situation, and we will need God's wisdom to know which is which. The second thing we should note before we carry on is how Daniel brings up this issue that he has with the food and the drink. He privately brings his request to the chief of the stewards, of the eunuchs, and then he approaches the the stewards in charge. He doesn't make this big grand speech in front of everyone. He doesn't post on social media to make sure everyone knows. He privately, quietly asks for different food and drink. And I wonder if perhaps his low-key approach teaches us, reminds us, that we don't need everyone to know everything that we do for Christ. So back to the point. Of all the things Daniel faces, it's the food he takes issue with. And we need to ask why. Of all the things, why the food? It can't be because there's something spiritually unclean about the food, because then they would have had to avoid all food, including the vegetables. It can't be just because the meat is not good, because he also avoids the wine. Instead, a reason that several scholars have suggested that I think really fits the the text pretty well is that Daniel and his friends draw a line here because they want to be clear who is in control. Whose provision are they ultimately depending on? Are their physical and intellectual gifts the result of the king's provision or God's provision? And we see that in the text. The author wants us, the reader, to be clear that it's because of God's provision. Look at verse 15 of chapter 1. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. We see it again in verse 17, don't we? And God gave. It was God who gave it. It was God who gave them their physical and intellectual gifts, so much so that in verse 20, it says that they were 10 times better than everyone else in their cohort. Again, we need to be clear, the point here is not that we should all become vegan. I'm not saying that you shouldn't. That's another sermon, but that's not the point here. The point is that living by faith means taking steps to remind ourselves who is in control. Who gave us our gifts? Who is ultimately responsible for any success we have in our life? Moving on to chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He wants his wise men to interpret the dream without him telling them what a dream is. And so unsurprisingly, no one can do it. And again, unsurprisingly, he responds the way that a king at that time would respond. He threatens to kill all of them, which is not a productive way to solve your problems. (laughs) Enter Daniel, who alone is able to do what the king asks. But Daniel makes clear that his wisdom is not his own, but it's from God. And that's our second point, relationship and wisdom. 
Chapter 2 is all about wisdom and wise people. And in a chapter that's all about wisdom, there is only one who is truly wise. Look at what Daniel says in verse 20 as he prepares to go before the king. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. We see it here again, don't we? God is in control. God is the only one who is truly wise. We see here the importance as we live in exile of God's wisdom. And not just that, as we seek wisdom, Daniel reminds us that we cannot seek wisdom apart from God because true wisdom is from God. Tremper Longman puts it this way, contrary to modern misunderstandings, he says, wisdom has a divine origin, not a human one. Which means that at its foundation, wisdom is not a lesson to be learned, but a relationship to be enjoyed. Daniel's wisdom, contrary to that of the, of the learned Babylonian astrologers, did not come from books of dream interpretation. Instead, it came from a conversation, a prayer with God himself. You see, to live by faith, we need the divine wisdom that God provides and that we can only obtain in relationship with him. Revealed by his spirit in his word and most supremely in Christ. And we need to ask it, as we seek to live by faith, do we try to depend on what the world says is important or what on, on what God says is important? As we try and chart a path for ourselves, as we try to chart a path for our children, our grandchildren, our loved ones around us, those who seek our advice, what do we advise them to seek? Technology? Connections? Wealth, qualifications, connections, IQ. I say this as a rebuke to myself. Because God's word is crystal clear here. These things are helpful, but ultimately, who are we depending on? Do we seek what the world says is important, or do we seek wisdom from above? From a relationship with the Almighty. Moving on, we're going to look at chapters 4 and 5 together because they have the same point, which is repentance from pride. Repentance from pride. You see, chapters 4 and 5 are the stories of two kings. Two kings with the same problem but with very different outcomes. Chapter 4 is about King Nebuchadnezzar as he writes about his pride at his achievements. Look at 4.29. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, It's not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Before we go on, I just want to note that that's how sometimes we talk about ourselves, isn't it? I did so well for myself, for my glory. If in our conversation it's all about me, we've, we've missed something. Chapter 5 is about the pride of another king, King Belshazzar. He threw a feast 
And then he insulted God by using some of the holy vessels from God's temple. Look at 5 verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. See, Nebuchadnezzar was, for Nebuchadnezzar, it was all about me. For Belshazzar, it was, I'm better than you. He might have been showing that he was better than Nebuchadnezzar by showing that he dared to use the vessels that even Nebuchadnezzar did not dare to use. Or he might have even have been trying to show that he was better than God. You see, while Nebuchadnezzar's pride was in taking credit for his own achievements, Belshazzar's pride was in trying to show that he was better than everyone else, including God. See, and then Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar both suffered judgment for their pride, but there was, there's a key difference. While Nebuchadnezzar was overcome by madness, he eventually recovered. But Belshazzar was killed. And the difference between the two kings was repentance. You see, Nebuchadnezzar repented from his pride, but Belshazzar did not. Look at what Nebuchadnezzar wrote at the end of chapter 4. Verse 34, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honoured Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Christ City, beware of pride. Beware of taking credit that it's not yours to take. Beware on focusing so much on getting the praise and honour that you deserve that you forget giving God the praise and honour that He deserves. I, I have seen it, the, how destructive it can be when all you want in life is to get the recognition that you think you are entitled to. This is a warning. This is a warning for us to repent of our pride. But here, this is also an assurance of the forgiveness that God lavishly gives us by His grace. Nebuchadnezzar didn't deserve to be forgiven, and neither do we. And living this side of Christ, our assurance is rooted in the historical event of Jesus' death and resurrection. You see, Jesus took the judgment for our pride and every other sin so that when we repent, we repent with full confidence that we have been forgiven. This is a warning, but I think it's also a comfort for, for some of us, isn't it? 
You see, the king of Babylon was the most powerful man in the land, one of the most powerful people in the world. Imagine the comfort God's people received when they read that King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the land, the one responsible for dragging them out of their land to be exiled, acknowledged that God was greater than him. Their God was greater than him. And even as we are surrounded by powerful people who boast of their own successes, who might abuse their power, even perpetuate injustice, this is a comfort that God is in control. And one day he promises he will humble all those who walk in pride. This is a warning, but it's also a comfort. So we've had remember, relate, repent, and now we come to resist. Resistance amidst opposition. We're looking at chapters 3 and 6. In chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of gold and orders everyone to bow down and worship the king and to worship the image. Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse. And so they are brought before the king who threatens to throw them into the furnace if they continue to refuse. They continue to refuse. They are thrown into the furnace, but God sends an angel to save them from this furnace. And before we move on, we need to spend some time looking at their response to the king when he threatens to throw them into the furnace. Look at 3.16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Oh, I love it. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Verse 18 has three of the most important words that we need to take to heart when we want to live by faith. But if not. You see, verse 17 is a statement of faith in God's ability to save. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. But we know it, don't we? A life of faith is incomplete if we live verse 17 without verse 18. You see, living by faith means doing what is right, trusting that God can deliver us in this world. But living by faith also means doing what is right even if He does not deliver us in this world because He has already delivered us from this world. I'm going to say that again. Living by faith means doing what is right. It means trusting that God can deliver us in this world. But it also means tr doing what is right even if God does not deliver us in this world because he has already delivered us from this world. See, in Christ, we've been delivered from the sin and death of this world. We've been delivered from this world for a world that is far greater than this one. A world where we will be with God perfectly forever. In the words of Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I wonder, again, who of us need to hear that this morning? We have been trusting God. We've been doing what is right, but now things have not gone as we think they should have. 
We knew God could have done that, but He hasn't. And now the rubber meets the road. Will we trust God? Will we trust that God will do ultimately what is good for us and what is good for His glory? Would we rest in the assurance that even if He does not do what we want in this world, we have been rescued from this world? (laughs) And therefore, as exiles, we live with one eye on the world that we have been saved for. You see, Christ City, living by faith in exile means living with the sure confidence that we have another home. We're headed for another home that is far, far better than this one. And we see the same thing happening in chapter 6. Time has moved on, Darius is now king, and Daniel has been promoted. Daniel's colleagues are jealous. They know that Daniel prayed to God, and in the ultimate example of office politics, they tricked the king into making it a crime to pray to anyone but the king. When Daniel prays to God, as they knew he would, they immediately report his crime to the king. And so Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, but God miraculously keeps him safe by shutting the mouths of lions. And again, there's so much else to unpack here, but there's one thing we need to see in verse 4, as Daniel's colleagues plotted against him. Chapter 6, verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. As we live by faith, let us live with such faithfulness that the only fault others find in us is that we follow the law of our God. Sometimes faithfulness will earn us favour with those around us. But sometimes faithfulness will lead to opposition when God's word is at odds with the culture. And Daniel teaches us that when we need to choose between allegiance to God and giving in to our culture, we must always choose allegiance to God. We need to ask for God's help to help us resist the culture. A critical part of learning this is to read, is learning how to read our Bibles well. You see, when our culture asks a question of our faith, we must start by asking, what does the Bible say? We must ask, what does the Bible say? Rather than asking, how can we make the Bible say what our culture says? It's good to ask these questions. When our culture asks questions of our faith, when our culture interrogates our beliefs, it's good to, to stand up to these questions and to really consider and wrestle with these questions. It's good. But we must be clear where the answer comes from. The answer comes from God's good word. But here's the thing. As we face a culture that seems more and more hostile to our beliefs, it's so tempting to just fall into an us-versus-them mentality, isn't it? To give up on the world around us and just focus on ourselves. It's us-versus-them. Which brings me to our final point, and I promise it's short. Redemption. See, 121 is a verse that I think seems insignificant at first, but 
it's, it's the key in my mind to unpacking much of what Daniel has to say to us. It says this, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. You know, th- what this seemingly insignificant verse tells us is that the six stories of Daniel that cover three different kings, and we know that there were th- at least three other kings between these three kings, it covers the reigns of six kings. And when we read each story in detail, we'll see that the end of each of these stories combine to tell a bigger story. The story of God's hand at work through Daniel's faithfulness. If you have time, which we don't have this morning, but you have time on your own, I highly encourage you just to read each of these stories because what you will see is that every story ends with the most powerful leaders in the world either dead because of their arrogance or humbled. Humbled and praising the one who is in ultimate control. And Daniel was there for it all. In fact, you could say that Daniel was used by God for it all. You see, Daniel, God used Daniel to speak his truth to power. And in the midst of turmoil and leadership transitions of the royal court, God used Daniel for the good of the city. Daniel was a source of constancy and stability amidst the turmoil of changing rulers and office politics. Daniel received promotion after promotion because everyone could see that God used his faithfulness in his job to help the kingdom flourish. So much so that when King Darius was forced to put Daniel in the lion's den, he said this, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. See, Daniel worked for the good of those around him and everyone knew it was because of, not in spite of, his faithfulness to God. See, the biggest story that's happening is that Daniel was living exactly as God has told his people to live while in exile. Because as we said all along in this series, living by faith in exile does not mean just waiting around for God to do something. It is doing what God calls us to do. And this is what God called Daniel and all the exiles to do. Jeremiah 29 verse 7. God gave very specific instructions for his people to seek the good of their city while in exile. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city, God says, where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In Christ City, can I say that these instructions are very relevant to us today. As we live by faith in our exile, as we live in a land that we know is not our true home. You see, living by faith in exile means that sometimes we will have to resist and protest. We have to resist a foreign culture. But all resistance must be done in light of God's overall control and must be done in light of what He calls us to do, which is the redemption of our city. It is not us versus them, Christ City. It is us put here for them. We have been put here for the sake of our family, our neighbours, our colleagues, the people we meet at the park, the people we meet on the street, for everyone we see in our city, whichever city God has called you to. 
God has put you, us here for the redemption of our city, that we might be a source of constancy and stability amidst the turmoil of our city. Amidst leadership changes and protests, God calls us to be the one constant thing that people can rely on. That, that God might use our faithfulness in our vocations at home or, at, or out of home for the good of our city. That God might use us to speak His truth to the powers of this land. That one day everyone might humble themselves and praise the one who is truly in control. This is a, this is a huge responsibility. I hope you feel it. <laughs> But thank God we don't do this alone. You see, we, we, we can only do this because we've already been united with Christ. The only wise, the only truly wise one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's the truly humble one who humbled himself to the point of death on the cross that he might redeem us to the praise of God the Father that one day, we will be with Him. When our exile is over and when we are truly home. Let's stand as we respond to God's Word.